You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, welcome back aboard the New Scientist Escape Pod. For this week's escapism, we'll be looking at the stories of three fantastic people, each with brilliant contributions to science, but each also not as well known as they should be. With me to celebrate these wonderful people, I have one of our features editors, Anna Deming. Hi, Anna. Hi. And uh, Bethan Ackerley, one of our sub-editors. Hi, Hi. And I'm Timothy Revel, our culture and comment editor. So I think rather than previewing each person this week, let's just dive straight in. Um, but before we do, remember, escapism is not just for escape pod. You can get discount access to a feast of escapism, big ideas, unsung heroes, and the latest on science and technology with a New Scientist subscription if you go to newscientist.com forward slash escape 20. Now, Beth, you're up first. Uh, who is your scientific person of interest? So I'm going to talk about Alice Ball, who was an American chemist who made a huge breakthrough in treating leprosy and, crucially, what happened to her work after she died. Ah. Whoa, leprosy. Yeah. How did she get involved with that? (laughs) Well, um, so to start at the beginning, um, she was was born in 1892 in um, Seattle, in Washington, um, and she came from a middle-class African-American family of photographers, actually. Her grandfather, most notably, um, James Presley Ball, he was a mm. celebrated daguerreotypist and, and an uh, abolitionist. A, <laughs> <laughs> a daguerreotypist. <laughs> a sort of early form of, of uh, portraiture photography. Okay. Um, so she sort of grew up around chemistry through the film developing process, which I think is quite cool. Yeah. So in, in 1915, um, Alice became the first woman and the first African-American person to receive a master's degree from the College of Hawaii, which is now the University of Hawaii and also to teach chemistry there. She was then recruited by a man named Harry Holman at Kalihi Hospital in Honolulu um, to join his team researching the treatment of leprosy. Leprosy is quite a nasty illness, isn't it? Like standard biblical terror illness territory. Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, (laughs) leprosy is an infectious disease. Um, You're right. Uh, It's caused by bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae, uh, and it causes skin lesions and, and nerve damage. And in Alice Ball's time, it was it was really highly stigmatized and and thought to be extremely contagious. 
Yeah. So, but that's that's not actually right, is it? Like, it's not as bad as people thought it was. Is that is that correct? Yeah. No. It's it's only mildly infectious. Like, you can't get leprosy through casual contact with a person, like like from shaking someone's hand. But in Hawaii, in in the early twentieth century, people with more advanced cases of leprosy were were exiled to a facility called Kalupapa on the island of Molokai uh, for the rest of their lives. And the only treatment for leprosy at the time was an oil taken from the seeds of the chalmugra tree, uh, which is native to eastern regions of Asia. The application of chalmugra oil was extremely difficult. It, it, it's hard to use on the skin because it's so sticky. It tastes awful, so people would vomit oh, when they God. tried to ingest it. Yeah, it's awful. And, and injecting it was extremely painful because of how thick it is. So it would lead to oil clumping under the skin and forming Ooh. blisters. So uh, people just decided to live with the leprosy then? No. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where the, where the treatment sounds almost as bad as the as the illness. But um, so in in 1915, when and Alice was only 23 uh, at this point, um, she managed to isolate important compounds in the chalmugra oil to create uh, an injectable, water soluble form that retained all the oil's beneficial properties, but could be easily absorbed into the body. And this method was very successful. Um, by 1918. 78 leprosy patients who had been isolated at Kalihi Hospital. Uh, they were free of lesions and had been discharged so that they could go home to reunite with their families. That's amazing. Yeah, and the technique went on to be widely used to relieve the symptoms of leprosy uh, until an antibiotic called Dapsone was introduced to cure the disease in the 1940s. So it seems, it seems like she really made a, a pretty big difference and also in a very short space of time. Yeah, yeah, she did. Um, but sadly... Alice never got to see the results of her work. So she oh. died on New Year's Eve in 1916, aged 24, oh, no. just before she could, yeah, just before she could publish her work. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's really sad. Um, and the circumstances of her death are unknown. Um, it, it might have been tuberculosis. It might have been chlorine poisoning during a demonstration in, in the lab. We're not sure. Is that why she's not better known then? Partly. So after Alice died, the president of the College of Hawaii, Arthur Dean, he continued her research and, and in the early 1920s, he published work detailing the so-called Dean method, which was a very, very minor tweak on Alice's unpublished technique oh. without mentioning her name at all. Oh, what a swine. Yeah, yeah. it's awful. Um, you know, she was an African-American woman. She didn't have the same status as her white male colleague at the time. So her work was really easily stolen. Um, and in 1922, uh, Alice's supervisor, Harry Holman, um, he published his own paper uh, that credited Ball and, and he called the technique the Ball method. But despite this, Alice was largely forgotten for several decades. I feel like this, there is some good news coming, right? Things have started to turn around. <laughs> you know about Alice Ball. So it is what's the... Yeah. How do we know about her now? Is she now getting some of the recognition she rightly deserves? Thankfully, yes. So um, in the 1970s, uh, a few historians in Hawaii, um, including Catherine Takara and Stanley Alley, they came across Alice's name and then they worked over several decades to make sense of her story. And on the 29th of February 2000, uh, a plaque with Alice's name was placed at the base of the Chalmugra tree at the University of Hawaii. And the former governor of Hawaii declared it to be Alice Ball Day, which is celebrated every four years on that date. And since then, she's been posthumously awarded the university's highest honour, uh, which is the Regents Medal of Distinction. And, and you can also see her name uh, inscribed on, on the frieze on the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, next to people like Florence Nightingale and, and Marie Curie. There's a really nice film about it, isn't there, called The Ball Method that came out last year. 
Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's last year. Yeah, we, so we reviewed it in the magazine at the time. So if you want to know more about Alice Ball, people should definitely check that out on our website. So Tim, who's your unsung hero of science? So mine is um, Emmy Noether. So she was a German mathematician who lived at the turn of the 20th century and, in my opinion, is responsible for the most amazing mathematical theorem of all time. Oh, uh, is it it better than Pythagoras' theorem? (laughs) Yes, way better than Pythagoras' theorem. No triangles involved in this one. Big Um, claim. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a big claim. I'm going to back it up. So Noether's theorem, it says that from symmetries, we get conservation properties, which is a bit dry, I will admit. But when you sort of unpick it is is really like the implications of that are really mind blowing. So her theorem tells us about the equations that govern the universe without us actually having to know what any of them are. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think that's a pretty cool starting point. So her theorem says that if the same physical laws apply across the cosmos, then momentum must always be conserved everywhere. And if the physical laws that hold today are the same as the ones that hold tomorrow, then her theorem tells us that energy must always be conserved. So these are like classic things, conservation of energy and conservation of momentum. And before her, these ideas were assumptions scientists had to make. They were axioms, really like base facts that we just had to assume were true. But from Noether's theorem, we can actually prove them to be the case. They're now results of her ideas. And so What that means is that she managed to deduce some of the most fundamental properties of our universe using her mind, some maths and a chalkboard. And I think that's just incredible. You know, we don't know what all the equations of the universe are, but because of her, we know what some of the consequences are. That's a pretty cool claim to fame. (laughs) Are you going to tell us she did some more, though? Yes. So, I mean, I would say that's a pretty good starting point for a career. Um, But yeah, she did. She did do some other stuff as well. In fact, she did so much. um, She was so prolific that historians tend to put her work into three epochs, which I think is pretty epic in and of itself. So a couple of the areas she worked on, she worked on like abstract algebra, which is solving equations and various types of patterns. She also worked on topology, which is all about shapes. And she was just obviously an incredible mathematician. And one of my favorite things about her is how she viewed her early work. So her PhD thesis was really well received at the time. But when asked about it later, she described it as mist, which um, is the German word for crap. Um, (laughs) So I'm I'm now a lapsed mathematician, um, unfortunately. But back when I was writing my PhD, I used to take a lot of inspiration from that. There's something about writing a crap thesis that just seems really attainable. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so what was her, her life like? Um, I can't imagine it was particularly easy to be a female mathematician 100 years ago. No, it was not. Um, so she faced a lot of prejudice and difficulties purely because she was a woman. 
So, for example, she studied at the University of Erlingen in Germany, and she was just one of only two women out of a thousand students. But just like being in the minority wasn't the only issue she faced. She had to get specific permission from each lecturer to attend their classes. And even if they said yes, she wasn't allowed to ask any questions. She could only sit at the back and watch, which obviously makes things a lot harder to learn. And then even when she got her degree, she spent years teaching at the university and writing research papers completely unpaid. Ah, that's missed. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed it is. Eventually things did improve a little bit for her. So there were two mathematicians, um, David Hilbert, um, who we mentioned on a previous episode, who is responsible for the Infinite Hotel, and Felix Klein. They invited her to come and work at the University of Gottingen. So they were a bit more progressive than your average early 20th century gent. But people still complained at the university. And the story goes that one of them said, what will our soldiers think? And so this was during the First World War. So they said, what will our soldiers think when they return to the university and find that they are required to learn at the feet of a woman? Which, you know, how could they be expected to do that? And apparently Hilbert retorted, I do not see that the sex of the candidate is an argument against her admission. After all, we are a university, not a bathhouse. Quite right. Yeah. It's not exactly Dorothy Parker, is it? But it's like, it's a good line, I think. <laughs> so like the nice little end to this story is apparently the university had this swimming pool that was very clearly men only, as the university primarily was. But once Nertha arrived, she swam in the pool nearly every single day, um, annoying the local crews. Yeah. Touché. <laughs> yeah, touché. <laughs> All right, Anna, um, who have you been reading about this week? I've been looking into the real brains that got the US a foot in the door in the space race in the 1950s. And, yeah, it's someone no one has heard of. Like, even a lot of rocket scientists haven't even heard of her. Her name is Mary Sherman Morgan. You heard her? No. No. No, yeah, you see. So for someone with such a great legacy, hers is probably the most astounding disappearing act from the annals of history going. So picture this. It's October 1957. The Cold War is mounting. We've got the US and the Soviet Union both puffing out their chests at each other. This isn't very escapist, Anna. (laughs) Yeah, bear with me. (laughs) But at this stage, space is really virgin territory still, like just science fiction. But the USR then has just launched Sputnik, the first ever artificial Earth satellite. So this was a really incredible display of technological might. And the thing was up there for three weeks, beeping out little pulses that any radio amateur on the, in the whole world could pick up. It was proper technological bragging rights. A and real big achievement. A, yeah, yeah. Mm. And then less than a month later, the Soviet Union sent up Sputnik 2, with a dog in it. <laughs> yeah. <Like> a... <laughs> the US was a bit behind at this point. Uh, they were really behind. So it prompted a, a major reallocation of resources in the US. And shifting focus. They had been working on rockets, but they were making missiles. So they switched then to reaching for the stars. The space race was on. This is more like it, I yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> so in fact, the US had one of the world's top rocket scientists working for them in Werner von Braun. But even with him, the best they could do with his rockets was just getting 93.1% of the way to orbit. Feels not very good, 93.1%. No, it, it's either there or it's not. You can't, <laughs> like a, can't do a B plus. Well, I did 93.1% of the thing you asked me to do. 
Right. So the US team were desperate. And so they contracted North American Aviation, which is an, was an aerospace company at the time, to find them a new propellant with the extra oomph needed to get their rocket into orbit. Did the typical, like, give us the best man you got. <laughs> with a better American accent than that. <laughs> oh, it's possible. That was quite good. <laughs> so this was a job for someone with a real head for complex theoretical performance calculations. And the best North American aviation had for that was Mary Sherman Morgan, mm. who was a woman. And not only that, she was the only person in the engineering department in that company without a degree. She'd uh. come from very humble beginnings. Her parents didn't actually sent her to school until social services threatened jail because they wanted her home helping out on the farm. Wow. <laughs> yes. And she did start a degree, but... She dropped out of college to take a job at a chemical plant because of the war, but also mounting financial pressures just started to make it untenable to keep on with her studies. But she was nonetheless still the best and just as well, because with rockets, everything has to work together. So always the fuel is engineered in tandem with the engine. It's not just about getting the most punch out of your fuel. You have to, it has to have the right density, the right cooling properties. There's all sorts. And there was just nothing off the shelf that met all the criteria for that engine and gave it that extra oomph. But with her signature brilliance and tenacity, Morgan hit on a winning formula. So they called it Hydine in the end. It was a 60-40 split of two quite different chemicals. And when you paired this Hydine as the fuel with a liquid oxygen oxidizer. So that's what helps the fuel release its energy. It was enough to get it into orbit. Ah, 100% nice. orbit? Or, yeah, know, no, it was up there. Yeah, no. <laughs> Sailing, yeah. <laughs> so thanks to her, the space-adapted rocket Jupiter Seat successfully launched into orbit 31st of January 1958. And without her, it wouldn't have happened. No one else could get that rocket up there. And at the time, the US had nothing else on the drawing board. So if they hadn't got that Jupiter C to work, who knows if they'd have bothered trying for the moon, you know? <laughs> That's amazing. It's like a real, like, different side of history if she hadn't have um, helped. So yeah. what happened to her? Like, why why isn't she better known? Well, there are a lot of reasons. The most obvious, I suppose, is who would want to credit the nation's great space success to a woman back in yeah. the 50s? <laughs> but actually, it seems Morgan had a lot to do with her own deletion from history, too. She guarded her privacy vehemently. According to her son, when someone from Life magazine turned up to interview her for an article following the successful launch, she called security. <laughs> Very wise to do that with journalists. Yeah. <laughs> so, it, And it's also quite often the case that we just don't shout about the engineers behind these great projects. Von Braun is perhaps an exception. He was quite a camera-courting publicist for his rockets. But more often we focus on the astronauts or entrepreneurs behind these things. So today we've given the engineer her moment as well. Yes. Yes, we have. <laughs> yeah, I really love this. This has been great. I, I feel like there's so many other unsung heroes we could talk about. Um, so definitely if, if people listening think there are some people we should feature in future episodes, definitely get in touch on Twitter on at New Scientist Pod. this week's escape pod remember for a 20% discount on a subscription to new scientist go to www.newscientist.com slash escape 20 thanks for listening bye bye Bye.
This podcast is produced by Ollie Giu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.